This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Death Comes to Parker Grove by Charles Rafferty and Newborn by Bob Thurber. Death Comes to Parker Grove, written by Charles Rafferty, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 3 minutes, 37 seconds. Everyone at the barbecue is talking about it. The death of Karen, the woman who lived on the next street over. Her daughter, Melissa, is the friend of all our daughters, though none of us knew the parents well. It's too soon for an obituary, so we're all theorizing, guessing our way into the grave with her. I think she killed herself, says Joyce. Joyce is the woman who likes to be known as the person who said an unpleasant thing first. I thought she had cancer, says Mike. I saw her pushing a shopping cart full of kids at the Big Y last week. Cancer wasn't her problem, says Joyce. I take a fork and jab it into the kibasa, bursting apart on a grill sold. I can't keep the flame even. I drag it onto a plate and look for the mustard. We were supposed to have Melissa over this weekend, said Tanya. I don't know what to tell Christina. She's never had anyone she knows die before. Tell her that God likes killing good people, says Joyce. Joyce is an atheist. She likes to remind people that when God got mad at the Pharaoh, he started killing the babies of Egypt. Don't say that, says Tanya. You're going to bring something down on yourself. You're going to make it so you're sorry. Tanya goes to church every Sunday. She's a Presbyterian. The day after Thanksgiving, she hangs an angel on her door. I thought you thought she killed herself, says Mike. He was looking off in the trees around the yard, as if he might have heard someone calling for him. I can tell Joyce is weighing out whether she wants to fight with both Mike and Tanya, or to just let it die. She looks up into the sky, perfectly blue and doilied with August still maples, and shakes her head. It looks like she's chiding a small child, who happens to be a god who isn't really there. Same difference, she says. Everybody takes an extra sip from their beer, or, in Joyce's case, her vodka and lime. We're all in our forties. So is Karen. The faithful and the faithless are all more shaken than we expected at the death of a woman we barely knew. I start passing around the kibasa. The toothpicks are topped with little clouds of cellophane. They look like tufts of colored pubic hair, says Joyce, popping one into her mouth. Everyone stabs a disc of meat as the plate goes around. I look across the lawn to where my daughter is swinging on a vine. The other kids waiting their turn. Don't swing out too far, I yell. It's the warning I always give. The vine swings over a hill. The farther you swing, the farther you fall. If that old grapevine broke at the right moment, my daughter would snap an angle, maybe a shin. But I've swung that vine myself, and it never gives. She killed herself, sure as shit, says Joyce. She knew what was coming, and she pulled the rug right out from under it. She did the right thing. Either way, it was cancer, says Mike. He says it with authority, reaching his toothpick for another kibasa. Beyond my swinging daughter, through the humid air, amid the oaks and maples and cherry trees, I see the roof of Melissa's house, its curtain windows, the smokeless chimney. 
I imagine the rooms milling with grief and cousins. I push a piece of kibasa into my mouth. The mustard is hot and good. My daughter pushes farther out on her tremulous, dying vine. There are other vines, still connected and alive, and reaching up into the woods around us. If there are grapes, they're too high up to see, harvested by birds with black and perilous wings. Charles Rafferty's poems have appeared in The New Yorker and The Southern Review. Stories appear in Sonora Review and Staccato. Currently, he directs the MFA program at Albertus Magnus College. Newborn. Written by Bob Thurber. Read by Vincent Louis Carella. Listening time, seven minutes. I'll sometimes tell a story not because it's very interesting or insightful, but merely to get rid of it. That's all this is, an eradication, a flushing out of sorts. I'm constantly attempting to decontaminate my consciousness. One time, when I was 15, I found a baby in a dumpster. I kid you not, I'm being sincere. But don't worry, the kid wasn't dead or anything, so this is not one of those gruesome dead baby found in a dumpster stories. The gruesome part, if there is one, concerns my father, Robert Allen Thurber, Sr., Private First Class, U.S. Marine Corps, whom in the summer of 69 was well on his way to becoming another American casualty of the Vietnam War. But this story isn't really about him, either. The night I found the kid in the dumpster was pretty hot, though probably not quite Vietnam jungle hot. While my father was crouched in some rice paddy dodging sniper fire, I was behind the Howard Johnson's restaurant and motor lodge in Pawtucket, right off the exit ramp. I lived across the street with my mother and sister in a cramped three-bedroom apartment overlooking an easy-off, easy-on gas station. Though I was too young to be legally employed, nights and weekends, I worked at Hojo's as a dishwasher. That Saturday around midnight, I was hauling trash from a banquet and as I tossed garbage bags into the dumpster, I heard a sort of wailing. I followed the sound, climbed half inside, and felt something wrapped in a sheet and peeled it open. I didn't expect to see a baby, a puppy or a kitten, maybe. It was smaller than my sister's chatty Cathy doll, raw and pink with a stump of an umbilical cord still attached. I held it at arm's length for a few seconds, but it wouldn't stop crying, so I gently placed it atop a bag of garbage and went inside. Andrea, one of the waitresses, was in the break room sorting her tips and stacking coins and columns. I asked where the manager was. Who knows, she said, and shrugged. The manager was a squat, pudgy man with thinning hair. His name was Mr. Silva, and he had gone to high school with my mother, which is how I got the dishwashing job in the first place. I found Silva in his little office, a room that measured four feet by six feet and contained nothing but a desk, a chair, a three-drawer filing cabinet, and another chair for visitors. The visitor's chair was a cheap folding chair, and I barely got it open before I sat down. I felt suddenly dizzy. Silva was writing on a clipboard. What? he said. I gulped air and swallowed hard. There's a baby in the dumpster, I said. Silva kept writing. A baby what? I shrugged, thinking he meant boy or girl. I didn't look, I said. He stopped writing and looked at me above his glasses. You didn't look? So how do you know what you saw? 
My knees were trembling, so I put a hand on each of them. It was wrapped in a bedsheet, I said. It looks pretty new. It's not wearing a diaper. Silva's face changed in shape and color. Show me, he said. We walked past the break room where Andrea was still counting her tips. Hey, Silva, we need to talk, she shouted. Not now, Silva said. I want to up my hours. I'm not making it on four shifts a week. Not now, Silva said. As we stepped outside, I listened for the baby, but there was no sound except the whoosh of traffic on the freeway. I began to wonder if I had seen what I thought I saw. Silva walked up close to the dumpster and stuck his head through the opening. Holy shit, he said. What did I tell you, I said. Andrea bumped up behind me. Hey, Silva, she said. She squeezed past me, took a few steps, and then stopped. For a moment she blocked my view, and then I saw Silva walking towards us with the baby in his arms. Where in God's name did that come from? Andrea said. Because I was paid cash under the table, or off the books, I wasn't legally an employee of Howard Johnson's corporation, so when the police came, Silva told them he found the kid. The next day his name and picture were in the newspaper. The article said the police delivered the baby to Pawtucket Memorial Hospital, where doctors reported it to be in good health. Hospital staff nicknamed him Luke, short for Lucky. They described Luke as male, Caucasian, 17 inches long, 6 pounds, 9 ounces. A week later, a local church threw Silva a dinner where he was presented with a plaque and praised as a hero. Within a month, Hojo's promoted him from restaurant manager to general director of the motor lodge. Bad news for me. Silva's replacement was the former banquet coordinator, a woman named Vera, a strict librarian type who did everything by the book. When I showed up for my shift, Vera pulled me into her tiny office and told me I was a valued member of the team and a hard worker. She invited me to reapply when I turned 16. In short, she fired me, even though I didn't legally work there. I never saw Mr. Silva again, though I ran into Andrea the waitress a few years later at a bus stop. This was right after I had gotten married and my wife was expecting our first child, though I didn't mention any of that to Andrea. She remembered my name. We made small talk until her bus came. Before she got on board, she said, Hey, how about that night Silva found a baby in the dumpster? Wasn't that something? I said I remembered hearing about the incident, but I wasn't working that night. You weren't? She said. Oh, sorry, sweetie. I must have mixed you up with another dishwasher. From the steps of the bus, she blew a kiss off her fingertips. I pretended to catch it in my fist like I would a flipped coin, all the time wishing she hadn't mentioned Silva or the baby. I never told anyone it was me who found the kid. Luke, Lucky, whoever. One summer, six or seven years before the dumpster incident, my sister found a newborn bird that had fallen from its nest. The thing was featherless and raw-looking. She wanted to put it back, but we couldn't find any nest in the overhanging trees, even though we climbed every one looking for one. Finally, she scooped the bird into a coffee can, carried it over to the church, and left it on the front steps. She claimed God would take care of it, that it was officially his bird now. But I didn't believe that for a second, because whose goddamn bird was it in the first place? Same with my father. Whose war was he fighting? Not mine. Not yours. Another thick-headed, gung-ho marine who believed he was humping through hell in order to save the world from the spread of communism. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm pushing 60, and though I never went to war, I still believe in God and country. I know where the country is, right beneath my feet. But where the fuck is God when you need him? 
Bob Thurber is an old, unschooled writer, the recipient of more than 40 awards and citations, and the author of Paperboy, a dysfunctional novel. He can be contacted at bobthurber.net. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off, and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.